All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. They, uh, Our sponsors are... Blue Goldwater Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Boromoral Resources, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ellen Brown, and uh, also listening in uh, is my good friend Al Corlin, who will be with me alone in the final, uh, towards the end of today's show. Uh, but those of you who may not be familiar with Ellen, and she's been on our show a few times, but uh, she developed her research skills as an attorney practicing civil uh, rights lit- litigation in uh, Los Angeles, and Ellen has been involved in many humanitarian issues, not just in uh, uh, in civil rights, but also in banking, and uh, her experience has been, uh, she also lived uh, 11 years in countries like Kenya, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, uh, where uh, she was really made aware of a lot of the kinds of concerns that John Perkins has talked about in the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, uh, and so Ellen, Ellen really is involved with a lot of things to do with common folks, the needs and how uh, common people are being abused in one way or another. Her book, Web of Debt, is really a must-read. You need to, if you care about what's going on and why our economy is in such bad shape as it is, well, the Web of Debt will uh, go a long way in helping you understand uh, all of that, but Ellen has also been involved in, in some areas in the pharmaceuticals and, and a lot of different things that she has done uh, over the years, and she works tirelessly, uh, really towards these things. I don't think it's, I don't think that Ellen is so much uh, motivated by by making a lot of money as she just is motivated by doing what's right and helping people. So, it's really uh, great to have you again with us today, Ellen. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Jay. Uh, you, uh, you know, I, I had to think of it as I was thinking about you coming on the show. I had to think of something John Mackey said. I don't know if you know John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods. Uh, he said at a gathering here at the New York City Junto uh, a f- couple of months back, uh, he, uh, he said there are two, the two most important days of your life is your birthday and secondly, is the day you figure out what your purpose in life is. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that uh, you figured that out, Ellen. It seems to me that that's uh, what you're all about, is, is uh, writing about things and uh, being active in areas to try to help humankind. I think John Perkins is, is about that as well. And, so, uh, and I know Al is, too, in his way. Um, I, I should mention that uh, before we get started, to our listeners, it's webofdebt.com, Web of Debt. 
com. Ellen, that's where people should go to really pick up on all that you're doing, right? Um, well, and my blog is webofdebt.wordpress.com. I have a new book called The Public Bank Solution, and it has its own website, which is publicbanksolution.com. Oh, my goodness. Well, I wasn't even aware. I knew that you were working on one. I didn't realize it was finished. I'll have to pick it up, and we'll talk about it sometime on this show, no doubt. Um, very good. Okay, so um, I hope that people out there will uh, will follow up uh, and get involved in, in all that uh, in many of the things that you're doing. I really want to talk to you today, though, about your article that you wrote, Not Too Big to Jail, Why Elliot Spitzer is Wall Street's Worst Nightmare. You know, in the, in the opening paragraph of that article, you said, and I quote, um, it may not be a coincidence that the revelation of his indiscretions with a high-priced call girl came less than a month after he published a bold editorial in the Washington Post titled Predatory Lenders, Partner in Crime, Partners in Crime, end of quote. Uh, are you suggesting that Elliot Spitzer may have been framed because of his uh, tough stance against the uh, parasitic practices of the of Wall Street? Um, well, I was actually being I was understating it. Really, it seems to me clear that he was framed because it was on February or sorry March tenth when he was exposed by the New York Times. He had written that article on February fourteenth. It was exposed on March tenth. On March 11th, the Federal Reserve came out with the very first of the, their bailout schemes, which was the term, I forget, the term securities lending facility, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it started out at $200 billion and I think it went to $2 trillion. So, So here was the Fed, I mean, the plan was obviously to bail out the banks, which Elliot Spitzer and all the other attorneys general were trying to expose and actually prosecute for for crimes in this whole subprime lending fraud that was going on. So you can't exactly be bailing out fraudsters. So they had to be silenced in order mm-hmm. for this bailout scheme to proceed. I mean, it was just like one day later. Well, Ellen, you know, how often have we heard people say, nobody's gone to jail? Nobody, I mean, all of these horrendous crimes that were committed, this whole housing uh, this whole housing bubble and the predatory lending practices that were going on. You know, I mean, you look back and you get the SNL crisis, people went to jail, people went to jail for Enron, and yet we had the biggest, the, the mother of all bubbles and, and uh, criminal activity on Wall Street, and yet nobody went to jail. And I guess this is a good part of the reason, right? Well, they silenced all the, um, all the regulators. Bill Black said that that uh, in the 1980s he was a regulator in the 1980s and they were an independent regulatory agency and they actually did investigate and jail people but now the regulators don't they don't actively pursue crime they wait for somebody to report something suspicious well the banks aren't going to report on themselves right and so the crime just never shows up Right. Well, what were some of the practices that uh, Elliot Spitzer talked about? What were what were some of the things that the banks, uh, the mortgage lenders, were doing uh, to deceive the public and to suck them into this uh, into this vortex? Well, that was the era of the um, subprime lending and the the no doc loans and. Um, Fraudulent loans were where they were represented to be something other than what they really were, and they were sucking people in for these um, 
um, variable interest rates when they really could have qualified for something more stable. Uh, so there, so it's, they were basically churning loans, making a lot of money on the fees for for churning these loans, and then they didn't care whether the whether the um, borrowers paid because they were selling them off to investors. And now we're seeing a lot of lawsuits by the investors who are realizing that those collateralized debt obligations were weren't what they were characterized to be. I mean, they were supposed to be AAA because supposedly they were protected by a derivative which would pass the risk off to some other party. Well, the other party didn't have the money, and when, they, when the, uh, there were those two um, AIG hedge funds that went bankrupt, I think it was the summer of 2007, that was the beginning of the, beginning of the end, and then um, Bear Stearns went bankrupt in 2008, that was uh, March 2008, that was the beginning of the bailouts. So, so it was this whole scheme of um, churning loans, selling them off to unsuspecting investors, and then the banks were keeping the, keeping the, um, just all those fees and profits. Yeah, and of course they would package these loans and put them into uh, uh, into separate well separate packages, and then they would get AAA ratings by the rating agencies. And the rating agencies, of course, have come uh, have come into some criticism for that, but nobody there has been punished either, right? Right. The rating and the rating agencies are private, and they they work for the banks. So the, it's a whole the bank the banks actually own the system now, and how they got in there was by. Deregulation, deregulation in the 1990s to um, when um, Glass-Steagall was um, repealed or the portion of it that prevented investment bankers and depository bankers from commingling funds. So we had this whole derivatives bubble that was actually literally nurtured by the government. But who was the government? I mean, it wasn't us. It wasn't the people that represented us. It was the government now represents the banks. They're the ones with the money, and they, they get their people in there. You know, um, in Elliot Spitzer's article that was uh, published, and, and again, folks, you can read about all of this if you, uh, if you go to Ellen's website, uh, there, and uh, uh, the article that she wrote, uh, Not Too Big to Jail, Why Elliot Spitzer is Wall Street's Worst Nightmare, uh, you have linked up there in that article to Elliot Spitzer's article that was published, and uh, uh, and he talks about how it became very obvious that this illegal behavior was going on, and the Bush administration then, rather than trying to hone in on this wrongdoing, uh, they actually turned things around and they used the uh, the controller of the currency, I believe, to try to um, um, to to keep the states from putting into uh, into law their own uh, their own protection right mm-hmm. well they use federal preemption so they basically took the teeth out of all the attorneys general who were pro- who were proceeding with they all had their own state regulations that kept banks from or at least allowed them to investigate the banks for fraudulent practices so the OCC overrode that and the Federal Reserve what became the Uber regulator of all the banks, and of course they did nothing. The Federal Reserve was working for the banks. The Federal Reserve is owned by the banks, right? All right, so they are going to work for the people that own them, and this is what is incredible that we have essentially what is a monopolistic banking system. And uh, so the Bush administration actually—I mean, Spitzer—I think was trying to put some things in place. Uh, 
uh, or, or at least was was aware that the states there were some all fifty states objected to this measure by uh, by Bush that that basically emasculated the states' rights to protect their own citizens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they it, they overrode the or they exercised federal preemption. It went back to I think 1865, the National Bank Act. There was some obscure provision that gave the OCC. Uh, regulatory power, power, so they were exercising that and stopped the states from the attorneys general from from doing anything. Yeah, so we have uh, one big monopoly, essentially one big monopolistic banking system, which is what Elliot Spitzer Spitzer rails against in his book Protecting Capitalism Case by Case. He makes the point uh, that uh, that monopolistic power. Um, you know, is is not good, and I think most people would agree for that. Or agree with that. A lot of my free market folks, though, don't want to see government getting involved. But it seems to me that when people are doing illegal things and when they're lying and they're uh, distorting the truth or breaking kneecaps to try to get things their way, uh, there's a place for government to step in and mm-hmm. uh, and put a stop to that. Yeah, we have a vision of capitalism being a lot of little mom and pop shops competing with each other. But that's not what we have. Like you say, we've got big monopolies, and you can't compete with that. I mean, even your small local banks can't compete with the Wall Street banks, and they're being eaten up by the Wall Street banks. Um, the uh, In Elliot Spitzer's uh, final paragraph in his article, uh, he wrote, and I quote, when history tells the story of the subprime lending crisis and recounts its devastating effects on the lives of so many innocent homeowners, the Bush administration will not be judged favorably. The tale is still unfolding, but when the dust settles, it will be judged as a willing accomplice to the lenders who went to any lengths in their quest for profits. So willing, in fact, that it used the power of the federal government in an unprecedented assault on state legislators as well as on state attorneys general and anyone else on the side of consumers, end of quote. Well, Ellen, um, it seems to me that not too many people are paying much attention uh, or blaming the Bush administration for this problem. I mean, this is now several years and people's memories are very short. What do you think? Do you think that Elliot Spitzer is right? Of course, he wrote this before he was exposed for his indiscretions with the call girl. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I wrote, because I just wanted to remind people what, how this all evolved. Um, it, it would be the Bush administration, but you could. my sense is that people don't get to be president now unless they're basically mouthpieces for the big moneyed interests. So mm-hmm. it's not all that much different. Well, it was Clinton, of course, who allowed the Glass-Steagall Act to be Right. Um, defanged. And now we have Obama who is, who is ready to appoint Larry Summers as, um, Ben Bernanke's successor. And Larry Sem- Summers was the guy who deregulated the whole system. I mean, I suppose from their point of view, that shows he's a great success. He knows how to manipulate the system. But they're not working for us. They're working for the banks. The banks allow people to become president who, who are working for them. We, I don't know. I don't, wouldn't say that we've had a real independent president since Kennedy. I think since then we've had actors and people that practice their lines and read teleprompters. Right. Well, I guess maybe um, the message was made very clear by what happened to Kennedy, that the president is not really the president in the United States. Um, now, 
Okay, so Elliot Spitzer is running for office again, and I had hoped to possibly get him on the show. It's about a week from now, the primaries in New York. Um, he is running uh, for controller, looking to, um, uh, to work his way back into the political system. Uh, what do you think his chances are? Um, well, he was ahead. I haven't looked today to see, but, it, but he, the, his um, opponent is coming up. I mean, he's getting a lot of support from the major media. And I'm sure the opponent, I mean, I've heard somebody from New York who said, I can't even, I'm sorry, I don't even, <laughs> Springer, what was it? Stringer, yeah, Stringer, I think Stringer, yeah. uh, Manhattan the, Borough President. Uh. Yeah, that he's a perfectly good, I'm sure he's a qualified candidate. But what is so interesting about Spitzer is that he is so aggressive against the banks, and he's sort of a creative thinker, and I think that's what we we need right now. If you get your ordinary politicians in there, you're just going to have business as usual, but we need somebody who can see through the system and sees where to to poke and prod to to you know get blood out of a stone or whatever to get to get some movement happening and that's the type of person Spitzer is. I mean he's very bold and he's got his own mission, like you say, he's got his mission to expose these um, banksters. Yeah, I mean, whatever drives Elliot Spitzer, uh, and again, I think his his book, uh, Changing or uh, Protecting Capitalism Case by Case, is very interesting. He he has had a history of really being very aggressive against wrongdoing. I mean, there's the case of the um, uh, the case of the Gambino family in the uh, in the uh, in the trucking business in New York City, in the in the um, textile business, precisely, uh, and the various families carved up their own areas and did not, and, and everybody agreed that there would be no competition. So that uh, if if one sweatshop wanted to go out and hire a cheaper trucker, for example, uh, that that outfit would be uh, that that company would be threatened, physically threatened, if they tried to undercut the Gambino family's trucking. A monopoly, uh, and so he went. Uh, basically, what they did was set up a. Um, uh, they set up their own trucking company to compete uh, against the Gambinos, and then they, of course, had that. Uh, it was a sting operation, and they had that uh, that um, you know, the discussion with the Gambino folks uh, recorded, in which they were threatened to have their legs broken if they didn't uh, back away. So that was what he used then to go after them. But then he went after Marsh and McLennan. Marsh and McLennan was lying uh, to their clients about uh, other bids and and then uh, taking money from their clients uh, just totally illegally, totally uh, unscrupulously. So Spitzer uh, then has, uh, you know, and I haven't read the whole book. There's so many. It's really a very interesting read. I find very, very fascinating. But he has a sort of history. Uh, and whatever drives a man, I don't know. I mean, I think most people say, uh-uh, not for me. I want to enjoy my my good life. I don't want to get involved. Uh, this is not this is this is not good. I, I would rather just have an easy life and walk away from it. Uh, but something about this man seems to be uh, driving him, and I I I don't see anything. I mean, I may disagree as a libertarian, a free market libertarian, uh, with the notion that we need more government regulation. Sometimes I think we probably do, but let's enforce the regulation we have, and let's not. You know, it, it seems to me that's what we should start with. Um, you wrote. In your article, also um, about some other people that I thought were very interesting, Lynn Paramore, 
a feminist, uh, wrote an article explaining why it would be in the best interest of women to forgive Spitzer for his so-called, uh, well, for his call girl visits. Can you tell us what, uh, can tell our listeners what her, Lynn's argument was? Well, first she she went through his his record for women's rights, and he's very mm-hmm. very very strong in favor of women's rights. And he's, you know he's actually an activist; he does things rather than mm-hmm. just talk about them. But but then she concluded, but the real reason that it's in their best interest. I mean, the thing that he is so strong in is um, this whole exposing financial corruption. And most women today, I mean, even assuming, of course, that the call girl he got involved with was making very big bucks. I mean, we're not, it, it wasn't the 19th century, uh, you know, person trying to feed her children out in the streets. But, yeah. but, but the person who is out in the streets trying to feed her children, it's because they've lost their home, they've lost their job, and that's what we have right now. We have millions of people who have lost their homes and lost their jobs because of Wall Street corruption. And mm-hmm. somebody's got to expose that and uh, straighten it out. Well, I know, Ellen, you're doing what you can in that regard, too. And I, I guess all of us are. I think Al Corlin, who's listening in, and we'll get Al's input into this in a few minutes, uh, if not before. I think that there's a lot of us out there that are trying to, um, you know, have a sense of things. Things are things have gone terribly wrong. John Perkins certainly would fit into that category as well. Um, another article that you, uh, another article that you referred to in your article. Uh, was written by Thomas Ferguson, titled "Why Elliot Spitzer's Return Terrifies Big Finance." Uh, what did Professor Ferguson have to say about that issue? Well, he and Eve Smith, who I also cited, uh, were talking about that the controller it has he's allowed to look at the books with the particularly the um, the pension funds, mm-hmm. and the pension funds are, are known to be the big patsies. You know, they're the, they're the suckers that always. Get, um, get stuck, stuck. Bad, bad investments, and nobody's really paying attention. Plus, there are these huge fees that are always being creamed off the top for for bad bad investment advice. So, but the uh, but the investment advisors themselves consider that a trade secret. Their 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 agreement with the pension funds, and they don't they don't publish that. But the controller has access to that, so he can he can be paying attention to what's going on. And you, you just get the sense that there's there's huge corruption in well, particularly the pension funds. So just that might seem like a small corner of the of of the whole problem, but look at Michigan, for example. Their pension mm-hmm. funds just got wiped out because of bankruptcy. And New York at one time filed for bank or was close to filing for bankruptcy. That was when uh, uh, Ford bailed them out after public pressure. So anyway, that, that he, he really is in a critical place to expose critical things. Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed you said that he was ahead. You saw recently, the latest that I saw was that Spitzer uh, is substantially ahead in one pool, and in, in another one he is tied with the uh, Manhattan Borough president uh, uh, for uh, the controller spot in the, um, uh, in the primaries. And it all depends on what the percentage of the black turnout is supposedly according to this poll if black turns out if blacks turn out in large numbers spitzer wins if they don't uh, he doesn't win and so uh, this is a very interesting dynamic going on and i i certainly will be watching it very closely being a a citizen of new york city it's uh, but i think it's much bigger than that i think elliot spitzer is 
is bigger than uh, this whole issue, obviously, is, is just of enormous importance. And, you know, if there's anybody left, I, th- I think it's very important that people understand what's going on. And with Spitzer can be, uh, uh, can be exposed for his indiscretions. Uh, you know, it sort of reminds me of the, of the story uh, of Jesus telling the crowd, if anybody here is without sin, let them be the first one, let them uh, be the first ones to throw the stones. And everybody walked away. It seems to me that the, the thing that really scares me most, Alan, let me know what you think about this, but the whole notion that NSA is spying and getting information on everybody, they can use this information to try to quiet people, to get them out of the way politically, so that if the rich and powerful people are the ones behind this information gathering, uh, then they can use it to basically control the political system. Isn't this sort of a definition of, of, of a fascist totalitarian system? Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, but it seems to me that it, it is the media still. I mean, the media picks up on this and, and colors it in a certain way. I mean, even mm-hmm. somebody like Dennis Kucinich or... Um, Ron Paul, who are totally they're pure as a driven snow in terms of records, they still are able to marginalize them by by manipulating the me- media. I mean, it might just be a little easier by somebody who frequents a call girl, but yeah. but it seems to me they can they can get anyone uh, just by how they characterize the person. Yeah, well, that's for sure. And uh, I have Al Coral, and Al, you're there. Uh, I am here. I have been listening with extreme interest. I find it amazingly interesting that Ellen is as, uh, I guess I would have to use the word blatant, and I use that word uh, very, very uh, affectionately in her comments about Wall Street. We're going to get you on our show at some point in the very near future because I'm in complete agreements with Jay and you're in complete agreements with both of us. It's killing our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it really is. And, uh, and Dennis Kucinich... Uh, Ron Paul, for sure, and Al. The reason I thought of you right now was because I know you follow Ron Paul's uh, Ron Paul's uh, campaign, and you saw how the media treated him. Uh, and you know, I mean, there was one one um, uh, one person on CNN was talking about the danger that Ron Paul, when he was picking up a lot of support from in the primary, uh, that it, that he actually could win, and how fearful she was of that happening. I mean, the fact that they could say something like that and color, you know, I mean, what. Clearly, anybody, uh, you, people trust the media. They believe uh, these people are like gods, and I think maybe perhaps less so now. But um, but I don't know, Alan, what do you think? People still believe, you know, the mainstream media, people pretty much believe what they hear, don't they? Yeah, and I mean, I have to admit to being guilty of this myself when I was a busy lawyer with kids, and I would turn on the TV for five minutes, you know, and get the top of the news, and I thought I... I thought I knew was what was happening today. So, if all you get is the sound bites, then you you and you don't have time to look. I mean, we have to. We who are professionally looking at this have to look really deeply to sure. figure out what's going on. So, anybody who who just is learning enough to be able to carry on a dinner conversation and sound intelligent will will probably agree with whichever newspaper they read or whichever. Um, TV show they watch. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's just very difficult to find the time when you're raising a family and you have to earn earn a living. 
but I think that's why what you do, what Al does, what I do, what John Perkins does, what Daniel McAdams is doing with the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity is very, very valuable, is that we are providing, and the Internet is, is also making it, uh, making it available, information available. And I guess one of the things that make me somewhat optimistic is that younger people are tuning into the mainstream less and paying more attention on the Internet. So to, I guess the, the next move then will be to try to control the Internet and keep that out of the hands of those of us who would be free uh, to discuss and exercise our, free, our First Amendment rights. But, Alan, I know you do dig very deeply, and we're uh, planning to have you on next week again to talk about some other issues. Uh, you've written an article, Making the World Safe for Derivatives, another reason for the vendetta against Syria. That's one thing we want to talk to you about. You do dig very deeply. You provide a lot of great information. There's another article you wrote called The Leverage Buyout of America, which I'm looking forward to reading and talking to you about. Uh, next week. And again, uh, tell our listeners again the website um, uh, is, uh, again, I've forgotten what it's, it's the webofdebt.com. <laughs> yeah, my most active website is my blog, so it's a link to Web of Debt, but it's webofdebt.wordpress.blog. So that has all okay. my articles and interviews and things that are happening. Okay, and the new book that you just wrote, the title of that again is what? The Public Bank Solution. Okay, can you give us, we have 30 seconds here, so can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what that's about? Um, well, the, the alternative to bankster banking is public banking, where the profits actually go back to the people, where the, um, the it, a public bank would be, for example, we only have one, that's the Bank of North Dakota, which that you still have private banks in the state, but the public bank acts as sort of like a mini-fed, but they, they actually are working for the people and they direct credit where it needs to go. Forty percent of banks globally are publicly owned, and these are largely in the BRIC countries, which have uh, all escaped the credit crisis, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and it's largely because of their banking systems. So that's what I did was look globally and historically at public banking models and how they competed with the private and how the private managed to win, basically by cheating. <laughs> Very interesting. I, I, well, I, I will look forward to uh, picking up a copy of this book, Ellen, and we'll, uh, once I have a chance to read it, we'll look to talk to you more about that because I think it's very, very important information, very interesting as well. So thank you very much. We do have to go to a break now. We are out of time, and when we come back, I'm going to have my friend Al Corlin stay on with me. Uh, thank you again, Ellen, for being with us, and we'll look thank forward you. to talking to you next week. Okay, great. Okay, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back uh, after the break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. 
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me a good friend, Al Corlin, sometimes referred to as Big Al Corlin, and he is big. He's a big man. He's a tall guy. As a matter of fact, when I'm walking next to Al Corlin, this guy's about seven foot tall, and I feel like I must be his little woman almost. I mean, I just uh, seven, feel like... Seven, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to correct you, but it's actually seven and a half feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the day. Well, you're probably a good six foot six, to be realistic, six foot something like that. You're a big guy, and, and I'm a short guy, so, so it's a, you know, I, I would have to put on high heels that would be a foot, a foot tall to get up to your height. Uh, and, listen, I'd, uh, rather have, I'd rather have your stature than mine. Hey, you did a great, great job with, uh, with Ellen Brown. She is, isn't she cool? I really like her a lot. She's a very real person. There's nothing pretentious or phony about her. Uh, and, and I think she just has a heart for doing the right thing, Al. I think that she's, I think that she's motivated by, by trying to do what's just and right for people. And I mean, I think I, I, you know, nobody knows for sure what's inside other people's heads, uh, but I'd like to think John Perkins is like that. You and I believe very strongly Ron Paul is like that. I know Daniel McAdams, who works for the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, is driven by that same sort of sense of justice and doing what's right. And it's not just about making money, is it, Al? You know, Jay. Number one, I want to say it's a real pleasure being on your program, and and I have to I have to kind of confess to to your listeners and to our listeners also that uh, a lot of my philosophy has been shaped. My current philosophy has been shaped by conversations uh, that you and I have had uh, over the past. We've known each other about twenty years, and you know, it's you're doing a great job with your show, and hopefully, hopefully, you and I are both, you know kind of putting a chink in the wall of crooked politicians and crooked business people, huh? We, uh, I think we try. I think we're trying to do what's right, Al. We, we do have to feed our families. We have to make money, but I think you can do it. You can still do it uh, and do it honestly. And, you know, if capitalism works the way it's supposed to work, uh, if it was free, and there's where I think Elliot, Elliot Spitzer, I've got a lot of uh, a, a lot of comfort for what from what I'm seeing from him, and not not because he visited a call girl, but because of what he's saying in his book, and because of what he's done. Quite frankly, you know, I I I have a very limited uh, an idea of limited government, and I think you share that certainly, mm-hmm. Ron Paul. The idea that that in order to be free, our founders believed that we needed to have uh, the least government possible. But at the same time, I can't quite agree with my good friend Jeff Berwick and others who are sort of uh, anarchist, anarcap- anarcapitalist, uh, anarcho- 
anarcho-capitalist, I can't say the word right. Uh, but the point is that uh, I think that there there is room for a certain amount of government, and if people behave themselves and if they have the moral compass to – uh, you know, to, to practice the golden rule, as Ron Paul said. And wasn't it interesting when Ron Paul talked about the golden rule with respect to foreign policy? He was almost booed off the stage. But, you know, Al, if we treat each other well, if we take care of our families and the people around us, then government doesn't have to come in and do it. And then we don't have to pay taxes to government. We can really gear our efforts towards people that we are personally involved with and know and I think can actually do much better than putting money into Washington into a gigantic bureaucracy, and those people are so far detached from all of the people at the local level that they really don't really have any sense or a heart for what they're doing. You know, i got a question for you. I agree with what you're saying, but I have an interesting question. You know, I'm, I'm following this thing over in Syria very, very mm-hmm. closely. And sure. I spoke earlier today with Glenn Downs, who is uh, uh, Walter Jones, Congressman Walter Jones, Chief of Staff. He has a very, very interesting philosophy on that, and I'd like to get your opinion on it. His philosophy, in a nutshell, Jay, is that, you know, Obama's not calling the shots. Notice how the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, as of this morning anyway, have come together and they're supporting the president in wanting to go into Syria. And yet people like Donald Rumsfeld, John Bolton, and others are saying, what the hell are we going to gain? What are we going to possibly accomplish? And yet it would appear at least as of the news right now, as we're, as we're doing this live show of yours, it would appear that both sides of the aisle are saying, yeah, let's go in and blast them. That leads, that, that leads Glenn to believe that somebody else is definitely pulling the strings, Jay. Well, I think so. And, you know, uh, as, uh, as Ellen Brown was saying a little while ago, um, you know, Kennedy thought he was the president and someone had to show him he wasn't. Uh, it, it seems to me that... Um, uh, that I think it's fairly well known, and I think you know perhaps um, Obama throwing it back to Congress or making it look like he's throwing it back to Congress. He knew that he had the support before he threw it back to Congress. Uh, the main thing that I think uh, I think is that we better know for sure what's going on. I mean, we probably won't. We probably won't, Al. You know, and and uh, uh, you weren't here for. Daniel's discussion, but Daniel uh, Daniel talked with John Perkins uh, talked about uh, this notion that uh, a third party may have conjured up uh, the uh, not that there wasn't poisonous gas used, but that in terms of the source of this poisonous gas, uh, and there's there's good reason to believe that we may be lied to again, just as we were. Uh, just as Colin Powell was lied to before we went into Iraq. This is what concerns me most, is that the truth uh, is not allowed to see, uh, to see uh, the light of day. I'll tell you something really interesting. I got a comment from a listener on, on that exact issue. And I, I want to read this to you here real quick. Uh, ben B says, finally, in, uh, finally, Infowars.com reported that Syrian rebels in the Damascus suburb of uh, Jota, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, admitted, admitted to Associated Press correspondent Dale Gal, Gavlak that they were responsible for the chemical weapon attack, revealing that the casualties were the result of an accident caused by rebels mishandling chemical weapons Uh. provided to them by Saudi Arabia. Is that true? Is that true? I don't know, but it sure is possible. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and the United Nations says it's going to take them several days uh, to figure out 
what the source of the poisonous gas was. So, I mean, there's issues all over the place. And here's the thing, Al, you know, we know that we were lied to with respect to Iraq. Uh, and, you know, because people wanted to go to war. It didn't matter. I mean, there's no logic to this. As Ron Paul's pointed out, whenever we go into these countries, we make things worse, not better, for the people in those countries. Now, somebody's making money with this stuff, though. There's a lot of money. I mean, I Richard Mayberry, who writes an excellent newsletter, uh, you know, espouses buying defense stocks because it's a one-way street. Uh, you know, because we're going to go to war. We're hell-bent on going to war. But it seems to me what's really interesting to me, Alan, what I wonder about is, you know, how far we can take this before, uh, before we start seeing some real problems from Russia. I think we're going to see some serious problems. I think the potential is that we're going to see some very, very serious problems from Russia, and I think we're going to see some very serious problems from uh, from their ally, mainland China. You know, and I got to tell you, as as our colleague Bob Moriarty says, you do not want to mess at this point in point in time with Vladimir Putin. You don't. Now, if you know, I, I would qualify that by saying, you know, if Syria had acted in an aggressive manner against the United States or directly against one of our close allies, which they have not, I might change my mind. But at this moment in time, I tell you, man, I got to agree with Bob 100 percent. This this contemplated action of going in is definitely wrong. Yeah. Well, I hope Daniel is right. Uh, Daniel uh, McAdams, when he said that he doesn't think it's Putin's style, he's not as worried as as Bob is or some other people are that, in fact, uh, that that this could end up in, you know, in some really hot, bigger war. Uh, I hope he's right about that. Who? I mean, why would you not hope that? Uh, but, you know, one of the things I'd just like to point out to our listeners is that you have these very interesting discussions and Al, um, your website is the ke or kereport.com, uh, the Corlin Economics Report, and you put out something on Saturdays. Not only on Saturdays, you have other things. You put out, you have Al's Insights. That's something separate, isn't it? And then there's ke. There's the Weekend Report, and there's a ker commentary, right? We do. No, we have we have two basic shows. The only difference is the method of transmission. Our weekend show, which airs Saturdays and Sundays, is is housed on our website but it also airs on numerous radio stations around uh-huh. the country we do the same thing monday through friday but it is only transmitted via our website via you know podcasting and things like that and we have a very very active blog where uh, I, and we try uh, to to address every single comment on that blog. We get some great opinions this past weekend we had about four hundred comments uh, for the Saturday show. So, very interesting and very educational. It is interesting and educational. I am privileged to be a guest there many times, and I was last week, but I'm looking at uh, 396 comments, and I must say that I added mine to that, too, because someone wrote about the Federal Reserve and who owned it, and somebody posted a, uh, a, uh, a cut-and-paste from the Federal Reserve site itself, and I made the point that, yes, it's true that the Federal Reserve may be a nonprofit organization, but they are owned by over 50%, by over 50% of the stock of the Federal Reserve is owned by a handful of banks, uh, and those were the banks that were bailed out. So it isn't necessarily what you see in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and its profit and loss statement, not that they make it available uh, in terms of their profit and loss, but it is really um, 
it is it is really what the Federal Reserve does for on behalf of its shareholders, and that I think is something that Americans really should be aware of. Ellen Brown, of course, talks about this. Uh, G. Edward Griffin, you talk about it on your show. I do. Uh, many different people are are trying to make people aware of it, but Al, there seems to be so much complacency. I think within uh, within the uh, American uh, pol- political system. Do you think people? Um, it's uh, some people have compared it to bread and circus. Do you think that's that's what we got going here? I mean, we all like you like to play golf. I like to uh, and have a nice glass of wine at, at dinner. Uh, and and there, you know. But there's all kinds of shows. We've got sporting events. We've got everything going on, and people are too busy to pay attention to what might be the most important thing of all. I find it to be absolutely terrifying. I have, I, I'm, I'm a football fan, and you know that. And, and my wife and I are big supporters of University of Washington Huskies. And, and I enjoy watching college games, and I'm kind of getting sucked into watching NFL football right now. But I have to tell you, uh, I find it to be very, very interesting, the similarities, Jay, between what was going on in Rome during the downfall and what's going on in the United States today. I do not see how any rational human being cannot see the parallels and that, and that that doesn't frighten them because it's it's not getting any it's not getting any better. We're going down the same path. I'm I'm uh, I'm sorry to believe that that I have to agree with you. I, I think it was Bob Moriarty last week that that uh, made that statement and referred to uh, you know the famous book on the uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, it um, you know I think what we can do though what we have to do is to keep alert, keep aware of what's going on. Uh, you and I are very much involved in the gold mining industry. I think uh, very interesting paper that was written by Jisbert Gunenwagen, a person I'm hoping to have on my show next week, a hedge fund manager is talking about the enormous amount of gold that China is buying. He believes that the BRIC countries are being prepared, are preparing themselves uh, to set up a gold-backed currency, no doubt, uh, as as they're trying to unload the dollar for fear of the dollar following the path of the country that you just uh, outlined or talked about. Um, So, you know, I think what we have to do, though, at the same time, is we do have to put food on the table. We have to live our lives. And I think what we have to do is what uh, John Perkins is trying to do. I think what Ellen Brown and her way is trying to do. And that is to try to help each other. We start with our own families, right? We take care of our spouses. We take care of our kids. And then we reach out to the people around us, our next-door neighbors and people that we know that might need some help. I just think I was very excited and very enthused to hear John Mackey, uh, who wrote Conscious Capitalism, he's the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, say in, at the New York City Junto, which is an Ayn Rand uh, organization, kind of, and you know, he, he made the statement that he has been happiest in life when he's helping other people. And he's a man that, that forgoes the kind of profits that most CEOs of very successful companies are making. And, you know, that's the kind of thing, Al, that gives me some hope. When I have people like Ellen Brown and John Perkins, yourself, uh, Daniel McAdams, other people that you talk to and I talk to that, uh, that are concerned about helping each other uh, from the bottom up. I think if anything good comes about in our future, it's going to come about uh, from, you know, at the local level. It's certainly, if we put our trust in the guys at the top, I don't think there's too much reason to be optimistic. 
Jay, I got to tell you, I don't think there's any reason to be optimistic. And I have to tell you, I as with each passing day, I am more and more concerned about the way things are going. You know what? I'm accused oftentimes, as, I, as I'm sure you are, of being a gloom and doomer, you know, of being ira- an irrational black helicopter type guy. And I have to tell you, you know, I, I consider myself to have an IQ somewhat over 70, and I know you have an IQ, <laughs> and I know you have an IQ way above that. Did you say 170, it, Al? No, I said a seven. In my case, not in yours, in my case, you're, you're, you're way up around 170. But the, no, but the fact of the matter is, I just find it absolutely fascinating that people aren't scared to death right now. I have, you know, we live in a very interesting part of the world, Jay, and it's, it's, it's a very unique part of the world. It's isolated. Uh, closest grocery store is 20 miles away. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it, you have to want to be here. You don't just drive by our neighborhood on the freeway, for lack of better terms. And everybody in here shares a couple of things in common. One of them is most of us are over the age of 50. It's not a retirement community, but the majority of people are over the age of 50. And I have to tell you, everyone in here, we're a very close-knit community. Everybody in here, once they found out what I do... They start, I cannot go to a social gathering. I can't go out in the street without without one of these very well-informed people saying, hey, did you see what happened today? Did you see where Boehner is now supporting the president? Can you believe that? The people here are very, very concerned. I would guess that if you went into metropolitan Seattle, you would find that level of concern totally non-existent. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that, Alan. You know, one of the things, though, that I have to remind myself as I'm well over 50 uh, is that I can remember when I was younger and I used to think that people that were over 50 were just a bunch of cranks. So there could be a possibility, Al, that you and I, as we're getting older, just sort of see things in a in a different way than we did when we were younger. Certainly, you've been knocked around a bit over these years. I have been, you have been, everybody's been. If you live beyond 50, you've had some hard knocks. And so maybe you see things more realistically or maybe not uh i don't know but at least you know you have to take the information that you were given the information that you've gathered the experience that you've have and that's worth something i mean that has to tell you that has to be worth something i think in terms of preparing yourself and helping educate the younger people too uh to the extent they're willing to listen uh to what you've experienced in life because uh you know i i look at my elders and say yes you know, and as the older I get, the more I realize that they were right a lot of times. Al, we're out of time. I've got to say goodbye right now, but thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, listening in uh, with Alan. Great to have you, and I hope to do it again sometime in Great the near future. Here. Great to be Thank here, and don't forget to listen to Jay on our show. Thank you, Al. Take care. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and also a word or two about next week's guest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. 
SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Um, just uh, a little bit of a review of all that we talked about today. I do think that um, a lot of good information from John Perkins, from Daniel McAdams, from Ellen Brown. Um, you know, are we being too gloom and doomish? I, I think that's something we all, those of us as we get older, have to be conscious of. It is very possible you know, I can remember many times in the past when I felt things were going to really be bad and they turned out to be not nearly as bad as I thought they would be. Uh, and we muddled through and, and things went uh, in pretty good, uh, you know, things turned out pretty well. Uh, I remember talking to John Dessar, who used to be a frequent guest on Wall Street Week uh, years ago on PBS. Uh, John told me, uh, you know, suggested that... Um, that most of the time, catastrophic things do not happen. And I think that that's something to keep in mind, too. It's it's also possible that you can uh, climb into your bunker and miss the world and, and not live your life and not enjoy life and not uh, and not do things that are that are good for other people, too. I mean, you can be so, so concerned about yourself that you forget to extend a helping hand to those around you. And I know that's certainly not what Al uh, wants to be about. He's He's very helpful to others. Uh, and I think the people we've had on our show today also very conscious about helping others. Um, I'm going to have Ellen Brown with me again next week. Uh, and there's a couple of very interesting things that she's written about uh, that I think are very much worth listening to. Uh, she's written a, a new article, which you can get at the web of debt.wordpress.com, uh, Making the World Safe for Derivatives, uh, Another Reason for the Vendetta Against Syria. You know, she's linking in this whole notion of, of derivatives, how the banking system is tied in uh, inexorably with the uh, w- with our military industrial complex, as John Perkins called it, our uh, our corporatocracy. Uh, certainly, another word for it is fascism, where governments and large corporations are in bed together. That's certainly the world we live in now. Uh, I, th- I think there's no no question about that. So Ellen's going to be here to talk about that next week and the leveraged buyout of America as well, another article that she wrote. Uh, I'm hoping to have uh, Jispert Gunenwagen with me as well. He's written some very interesting ar- articles recently about 
Walsh about the uh, the Chinese gold buying of gold, uh, and Jispert thinks that we are going to be coming uh, that uh, we are going to see a gold backed system probably forced on us from the from the uh, from from the BRIC countries. Ellen talked very interestingly about uh, the BRIC countries and their banking system and how private banking is thriving. Uh, in the BRIC countries, and that's something I want to talk to her some more about. My engineer is telling me we have only 30 seconds left. I won't have time to tell you why I like Dynacore gold mines so much uh, and several other things I want to talk about, but you can learn about that if you become a subscriber. Go to miningstocks.com. Thank you, Tacey Trump, uh, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.